Good morning. Uh, this is Patricia Kohlberg for the Old Mole Variety Hour, and I'm here today with Jan Hawken, an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose latest film investigates the controversy around small modular nuclear reactors, or SMRs. The film is called Atomic Bamboozle, the false promise of a nuclear renaissance, and it will be, it will have its premiere showing at Cinema 21 on Sunday, March 12th. Now, SMRs are increasingly touted as a key solution to global warming. And even a number of mainstream environmental organizations are endorsing nuclear power as part of the climate solution. Jan, what I want to start with today is why you decided to make this particular film in this moment right now. Well, the project grew out of the last documentary film on climate activism uh, titled Necessity, uh, Climate Justice, and the Thin Green Line. And it features a number of climate activists and tribal leaders, including uh, Kathy Sampson Cruza, with the Confederate, a member of the Confederate tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, who was speaking throughout that project at rallies and gatherings uh, focused on fossil fuels, on also the threat of campaigns to revive nuclear power with these small modular reactors. And initially, I thought of her calling out nuclear as kind of a distraction from our main message here, which is fighting fossil fuel transport terminals and uh, rail, particularly through our region. But as I looked into the issue of nuclear power, because she kind of urged me to take a look at this, it was not um, on the radar of many environmental groups in the, in the area. And I think the industry had uh, gathered some support from some environmental groups, not, all of them for sure. So as as I looked into this issue, I thought this is something coming down on us pretty hard and heavy right now. The campaigns for these small modular reactors have been packaged in a way that's informed by all of the critiques of the nuclear industry more generally. And they've now been selling these reactor designs as benign, friendly, kind of feminizing and domesticating the uh, nuclear energy and its online footprint to make it a smaller one, including that these were these are important steps in responding to the climate crisis. And, and this was also um, leading to different proposals in the Northwest to revive the nuclear industry. So the timeliness of those campaigns and the push for reviving nuclear in response to climate crisis gave a kind of urgency to do something on this pretty soon. So this was a film that came out of, of a, a sense of urgency, particularly as we're vulnerable to false appeals and false solutions to a very real crisis we face. And Supposedly in Oregon, we don't really need to worry about this because in 1980, in the wake of the Three Mile Island 
accident when uh, a meltdown was narrowly avoided. Oregonians actually voted to ban the licensing of any new nuclear facilities in Oregon unless it was approved by voters and unless there was a national depository for nuclear waste, which of course we don't have. So why do we have to be worried in Oregon if you can't build them here? I think that ballot measure that passed was also the product of very creative, committed uh, organizing here in the Northwest, in Oregon. And the stories that I think have been lost and left behind, certainly not part of the collective memory of younger people, are very instructive in how we respond now to campaigns for an industry that has always uh, touted itself as kind of the embodiment of modernity, as modern, futuristic, clean rather than dirty. Um, as a young industry, it's been a young industry for World War II, and it still touts itself as a, a young industry, futuristic. And the the anti-nuclear movement here, the campaign against Trojan, which did succeed in, in 1993, combination of a number of problems with the reactor and anti-nuclear activism led to the closure of the of Trojan and then its uh, decommissioning in 2006. I think the, the lessons of that era, decades of anti-nuclear activism focused on Trojan here are really instructive for where we are now. And I wanted those lessons to be kind of recovered, a recovered part of our history and memory that can orient us to some of the the risks of many of these extractive industries that are so destructive, but the ways in which the nuclear industry has cloaked itself in secrecy, in a set of disguises that have either downplayed or downright um, denied the risks that, that they pose for public safety and public health, not uh, aside from just the costs yeah, I want to get back to some of those points, but here in Oregon, in fact, the ban on nuclear power plants is being challenged right now, which is another reason that this film is so timely. There are two ballot measures before the legislature at the moment to, in one way or another, overturn that ban and allow the industry to develop within the state of Oregon. Yeah, there are several that are, are bills that would put this before voters again, and a few others that are outright bills that would directly limit that 1980 law. So we've got our uh, work cut out for us. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. You started to touch on this and just talk about what arguments are being put forth by the industry to promote it? And then I want you to basically to rebut those arguments. And, and what are the pros and cons? The main arguments the industry makes are, you know, there's something old, something new, <laughs> something borrowed, something very blue in it all, you know, as it ushers itself onto the stage of the climate crisis as our savior. One is the cost issue. And for many people, that is driving the debate. And there's quite a bit of research now available that debunks the claims of the industry that it's uh, cheaper than 
fossil fuel and cheaper than um, renewables. And that is simply not the case. There's still about 90 reactors and maybe 50 some plants in the U.S., many fewer than the industry had had hoped for in the 70s and 80s, far fewer. They haven't been built and they're not probably going to be built again because they are very, very expensive. And some of what makes them so expensive are the the regulatory process that allows them to uh, meet some kind of safety standards. So there are a lot of reasons why nuclear power is so expensive that no one is talking about reviving those big plants. But the designers and entrepreneurs promoting small reactors claim these are much cheaper. Any one small modular reactor may produce a lot less radioactive waste and at a cheaper cost. But when you when you roll out a lot of them, it's expensive. And many of the, uh, the cost analyses by independent sources conclude that this actually would be a very expensive form of energy, far more expensive than renewables um, or fossil fuels. How about the timeline? That seems to be a big part of the debate. Can they be built fast enough? Uh, no. <laughs> there. But for any of these designs to actually be completed, to go through a regulatory process, to um, ramp up to the scale that would be needed in responding to climate crisis, even if all their claims are correct, would be very hard to achieve, certainly um, before 15 years or so. And the way they want to designers want to move through the regulatory process more quickly also raises concern for many, including the Union of Concerned Scientists. That's part of the pitch here in Oregon. Well, these laws were developed with older designs in mind. We don't have the same safety problems, so we should be able to uh, circumvent many of the regulatory um, requirements. So the argument that they're somehow safer really doesn't hold any water is what I hear you saying. There are many reasons to think they're far less safe. First, they uh, the whole concept behind them is to be built in factories and then shipped out to remote areas that don't have access to energy and then having to dispose of radioactive waste on the on site. It's hard to conceive of uh, rural communities or remote communities having the capacity to even do what is done now in places where um, the radioactive waste are stored. There is a proliferation problem of keeping the, the radioactive waste secure. There are all kinds of long-term problems. I mean, Native people talk about thinking about seven generations the impact of what we do for seven generations. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of generations of life in uncertain circumstances, having to manage waste that cannot be in contact with humans or other living things. Um, and there's a an enormous hubris in this industry in claiming they can just safely package this stuff. And most of them don't even address the issue 
of radioactive wakes that kind of punt it. You know, it's the government's problem to figure it out. Now, the strongest argument I think they have made in response to the climate crisis is that uh, many of the renewables are intermittent source of power. When the sun doesn't shine or the wind isn't blowing, you know, there, there will be problems with unstable or intermittent sources of power and that this is a problem to manage for the grid system we have. Clearly, there are um, engineering problems to still be worked out. And um, this is for some not a daunting problem. For others, it's a kind of deal breaker in selling nuclear. As a layperson, I would put my money on engineers figuring out the grid problem than the engineering and scientific problem of what to do with radioactive waste that cannot be anywhere near life forms for hundreds of thousands of years. A lot of what you point to, Jan, it seems to me, speaks to the problem, kind of an underlying problem, that this is an initiative that is being driven by entrepreneurial interests instead of, say, approaching the climate crisis by turning over the problem to our community of scientists and technical experts or allowing communities um, to take a more uh, active role in deciding what kind of energy sources they're going to have in, in their communities. In other words, a democratic process. Speak to that just a little bit. The The climate crisis, like many crises, opens up a lot of anxiety, despair, and, and depression about the, you know the the world we inhabit and the the future we face but it also opens up possibilities for forms of social transformation new ways of doing things and profound uh, even revolutionary changes with the climate crisis there also calls for more democratic ways of thinking about energy with more local participation, forms of conservation. Do we need the vast amount of energy flowing through these these big grid systems? Or are there other ways of conserving? The Columbia River is a kind of character in the Last Necessity film, but also in this film, in what Lauren Goldberg with Columbia Riverkeeper describes as the workhorse of the Pacific Northwest. The way the Columbia River is harnessed has been detrimental to tribal communities. And this push now to build small modular reactors along the Columbia is another chapter in that tragic history. So I think listening to tribal communities that are also by the way, not of one mind or one position on these issues, but have a wealth of wisdom and history and experience to draw on in thinking about what we should accept as progressive and what is regressive. It certainly requires more public discussion than it's, than it's received. The entrepreneurial advertising pitches of these M SMR designs are very much like advanced capitalist thinking in general. You know, it's just-in-time ordering, buy one now, pay later, <laughs> reverse mortgage your future. 
<laughs> the um, pitches of this and the ways in which nuclear reactors worldwide have become kind of a prestige industry because it, it's associated with, with the threat of being able to um, create nuclear weapons, but also as a, um, a kind of signifier of being part of the modern nuclear age. But it's been a costly experiment, and I think particularly costly in this country and elsewhere to uh, indigenous communities. Well, let's get back to that then, because the whole nuclear industry, both the weapons and the power uh, part of the industry, got its start at the Hanford installation. Nuclear reservation, yeah. Yeah, in, during World War II, where the plutonium was produced that was used in the first nuclear bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But that whole project entailed the forced displacement of four tribal communities, including the uh, Yakima Nation and the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian uh, Reservation. So talk a little bit about that very troubling history of neocolonialism, really. Russell Jim, Dr. Russell Jim, Jim who was a, was a beloved member of the Yakima Nation and really led the fight there to bring uh, indigenous voices into the discussion nationally of nuclear power and the costs of this industry um, and the living lethal legacy of the industry, even far after the war effort, after the Manhattan Project. The Hanford uh, Nuclear Reservation is itself a, a tragic and ongoing kind of graveyard of, of this industry and a legacy that it would like to forget. <laughs> so the indigenous people and other local, other people who live in that region live with that history. And many of them are proud of being part of the, of the development of nuclear weapons. And it was by many standards, a phenomenal achievement how quickly scientists and engineers came to that area. They displaced people and developed a culture of secrecy that remained kind of a signature ethos of the industry, keeping their problems very secretive. The legacy of the development of nuclear uh, weapons and plutonium there continued on after the war as, as reactors were built to produce plutonium for the atomic weapons industry in the U.S. So it did not just end with the tragic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the repackaging of nuclear power through Atoms for Peace, the domesticating of nuclear power continued into the post-war era. The film and the historical elements of atomic bamboos are meant to be a kind of recovery of cultural memory around this and to be able to draw on that cultural memory that has been so actively repressed by the industry itself and by the Department of Energy. And at a minimum, we should be informed and guided by that history as any wise person would be. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Hanford is now considered, I believe, the single most contaminated 
place in the planet. Yeah, it's a and, big, super, largest Superfund site. Yeah, billions and billions of dollars go into that and will continue to be needed for a cleanup. It's also a site of tremendous corruption of contractors who make a lot of money shuffling stuff around there. But nonetheless, really, the, our federal government needs to be held accountable for dealing with what remains a tremendous threat to not only local people, tribal peoples in the area, but to the Columbia River and the ongoing leaking of radioactive waste. Jan, before we close, I, I first want to ask about the details about the showing on March 12th. Yeah, this um, is very exciting for the team of us. All of the film projects carried out by me and a, a team of filmmakers are based on participatory methods where we have extensive consultations with participants and community groups who care about the issue. Um, I mean, there's one approach that comes out of the field of journalism, filmmakers who have a journalistic background where they do not show any of their the rough cuts of their film to participants. So participants would only see a film when they see with everybody else at a theater. I come out of participatory action research in field studies um, where I have an opposite set of ethical guidelines, that it would be unethical through my training and background to not share work samples with participants to make sure that We've kind of landed on what people intend to communicate, whether participants feel they can support what I've used of the interviews in the film, whether there are research questions that still need to be addressed, but there is extensive community participation and that that community participation will be reflected in the uh, screening, the premiere at Cinema 21 on the 12th, some of the lead Experts in the film will be on a panel um, and we invite questions and responses from the audience. That's why I make films as an activist, as well as a psychologist and filmmakers to use this medium as a form of cultural memory, as a way of gathering up a history of experiences that are so often lost and marginalized on the way that might be on the news for a moment a night, but otherwise left behind. Well, and there's lots to be learned from excavating and reliving that history, too. So the details of the showing are... Well, we encourage to people to go onto the our website, atomicbamboozle.com, or the Columbia River Keeper uh, website, where there's an event page. It's a benefit for the Columbia River Keeper and the Oregon Conservancy Foundation. And people can start gathering at 2.30. There will be tables with information, materials available. The program will start at 3. So, Jan, thank you very much for coming on to the Old Mole Variety Hour this morning and talking about your new film, Atomic Bamboozle, The False Promise of a Nuclear Renaissance. And we hope to see everyone on Sunday, March 12th. Thanks so much, Patricia. <laughs>